This week, a class about the rise in anti-Semitism in America between World War I and II. American University professor Pamela Nadell describes the 1915 lynching of Jewish man Leo Frank in Georgia, how international anti-Semitic texts made their way to America, and Henry Ford's role in spreading anti-Jewish sentiments. But during World War I, Ford's anti-Semitism became increasingly manifest. He blamed the Jews for causing what was then called the Great War. It wouldn't be called World War I until we have World War II. More after this. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. All right. All right. Well, welcome, everyone. It's good to see everybody. Um, we're going to start. Today's topic is anti-Semitism in America at high tide between World War I and World War II. And the last time that we discussed anti-Semitism, we focused on the years between the Civil War and the end of the 19th century, which you will remember was a period that historians called the emergence of a full-fledged anti-Semitic society. So just for a second, to refresh your memory, one of the events in the emergence of that full-fledged anti-Semitic society was the exclusion of Jews from hotels and places of public accommodation. And you'll remember that this refers to um, Joseph Seligman being excluded from the Grand Union Hotel in Saratoga Springs, New York, in 1877. You remember that we also looked at slides like this one, um, where we see in this, this image, which is from a magazine, and its caption is The Dream of the Jews Realized. And you'll see that we talked about that uh, how the sign of um, John Smith's dry goods, which was put up in 1820, is being taken down. And it's a little hard to see at the top, but it says Moses Eckstein's sign is replacing it. And if you look carefully around the other images in that slide, you'll see what's the name of the newspaper. In, in New This is from New York. It's now called the Jerusalem Herald. We also discussed how these kinds of images showed us that the Christian anti-Jewish motifs that were so prominent in American society continue to play out in American life. And here in 1896, you can see the Jews, you know they're Jews, their, stere their faces show stereotypical um, Jewish features, and the Jews are this time piercing the sides and crucifying not Jesus, but Uncle Sam. So the, this background is essential for us to understand in this class um, because we need to know that in order to understand what happens during the high tide of American anti-Semitism. One man, perhaps more than any other figure in American history, played an outsized role in disseminating anti-Semitism in the years between World War I and World War II, and his name, I imagine most of you have heard of him, was Henry Ford. 
But before I turn to Ford and his role, we need to spend a few minutes on the Leo Frank affair. The trial of Leo Frank for the murder of Mary Fagan was one of the great trials at the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century in which anti-Semitism played a prominent role. So let me tell you a little bit about the trial and what happened. On Confederate Memorial Day in 1913, 13-year-old Mary Fagan went to the factory where she worked to pick up her pay from the factory's superintendent, Leo Frank. Leo Frank was born in Texas, but he was raised in Brooklyn, and that made him a northerner. And that's going to be significant in understanding what happens in this trial. He went to college at Cornell, and he moved south to um, become part owner and manager of the National Pencil Factory, a business that his uncle owned. And there he also married Lucille Selig, the daughter of a wealthy and established Atlanta family. Around 3 a.m. on Sunday, April 27, 1913, the night watchman at the factory, Newt Lee, had gone down to the basement to use the toilet that was only the toilet for African Americans in the Jim Crow South. And he found Mary Fagan's mutilated body. Suspicion initially fell on Newt Lee, but almost immediately then turned to Leo Frank. Frank then and forever afterwards maintained his innocence, but newspapers began inflaming the public over the murder. The trial was an absolute circus. Prosecutor Hugh Dorsey was out for blood. He accused Frank of sexually molesting the factory girls. And when Frank was convicted, his conviction was based on the testimony of an African-American ex-convict named Jim Conley, who had given multiple affidavits in the case with conflicting evidence. And you must understand that in the South, only a Jew could be convicted based on the testimony of an African-American man. After the trial, a Georgia newspaperman said, if the jury in the Frank case had brought in a verdict of not guilty, the defendant would have been lynched. Frank was sentenced to hang. Anti-Judaism figured prominently in the trial. I actually found a letter that Frank's mother wrote to the Washington Post. In it, she decried, and I'm going to quote her words, the insults, the innuendos, and the slander directed not only at her son during the trial, but also at their religion. She likened the case, and this is what is, I think, so important for us to understand, to put this in like a wider perspective. She likened the case to another fairly recent international anti-Semitic crisis, the Dreyfus Affair. So I don't know how many of you have studied the Dreyfus Affair in other classes. I see a few nods. Um, in 1894, 
in France, Alfred Dreyfus, whom you see here, uh, a Jewish captain in the French army, was wrongfully convicted of giving military secrets to the Germans. And he was sentenced not only to life imprisonment, but he was sent to Devil's Island, an island off the coast of South America, where he was in solitary confinement and actually chained to his bed at night. Meanwhile, evidence began surfacing that the espionage was still going on. And so the, in France, they began to argue. There were pro-Dreyfusards and anti-Dreyfusards. And the arguments spilled over so much that the French writer Émile Zola published on the front page of a major newspaper a letter accusing the government and the army of having conspired to convict Dreyfus, which was true because they had manufactured evidence against Dreyfus. His letter named various military officers, um, and he, he said that they had subverted the truth to preserve the honor of the army and of the military and of the government, and he called for justice for Dreyfus. Zola's letter sparked a libel trial because if, if that evidence that he said was, was false, then he could be sued for libel. And it ultimately led to exonerating Dreyfus and, believe it or not, actually reinstating him in the army. So what you see here is his, his, is his court-martial. And Leo Frank's mother alluded to this in her letter. She was writing of the rigged trial that had sentenced her son to hang, and she cried out, and these are her words, for an American Zola to expose the lies that had convicted her son. Another international trial also figures. In 1911, in Russia, in the Russian Empire, a Jew named Mendel Bayless, who was a laborer, a Russian laborer, was charged with ritual murder. Now, some of you have studied the ritual murder accusation before, and Natalia has. Um, ritual murder is a medieval trope which says that the Jews murder Christian children to use their blood for religious purposes. It first surfaced in the 12th century in England, and then it spread to the continent. And here is another example of that ritual murder accusation. But Bayless refused to confess. Instead, he spent two years in jail and then was ultimately acquitted by a jury of Russian peasants for a crime that he had not committed. So the point is, you need to understand that American Jews were looking at the Frank trial and fearing that these cases marked a new moment. They weren't isolated instances. They were linking them together and seeing a frightening pattern. For Jewish communal leaders in the U.S., Frank's conviction proved that anti-Semitism threatened all Jews. After the trial ended, and while Frank's lawyers were appealing the conviction, Conley's lawyer, remember the African-American on whose testimony Frank was convicted, Conley's lawyer became increasingly convinced 
that his client, Conley, had been lying and that Frank was innocent. And so now a debate began raging in Georgia about whether or not the governor should commute Frank's sentence from, life in, from death to life imprisonment. Doubting, having doubts about Frank's conviction, on June 21st, 1915, on the eve of when Frank would have been executed because all his appeals had been exhausted, the governor of Georgia, John Slayton, commuted Frank's sentence to life imprisonment. And I want you to look at these words because this is what he said. 2,000 years ago, another governor washed his hands and turned a Jew over to a mob. For 2,000 years, that governor's name has been accursed. If today another Jew were lying in his grave because I had failed to do my duty, I would all through life find his blood on my hands and would consider myself an assassin through cowardice. You know who he was referring to? Which trial? Jesus, right? Pontius Pilate, the governor of Jerusalem, and the trial of Jesus that led to his crucifixion. It's an incredible, incredible statement. And he faced violence for commuting the sentence. So two months after John Slayton commuted Frank's sentence, a mob of 25 leading citizens of Marietta, Georgia, including, by the way, the Solicitor General, who's supposed to protect the law, without firing a shot, went to the prison where Frank was being held, pulled him out, and lynched him. I decided, actually, after talking with Grace the other day, I decided not to show you a photo of the lynching because there are photos that show men and boys staring at the camera with glee, and you can see Frank's body swinging from the tree behind them. And there, there are many different photos that were taken. Since they were sold as postcards, if you want to go online, you can easily find them. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. So what was the response to the, the trial and the lynching? In 1913, when Frank was first accused, an important Jewish organization that we've actually talked about, it was founded in the 1840s, known as the B'nai B'rith, the Sons of the Covenant, they created an organization called the Anti-Defamation League. Um, you know from when we were discussing his legacy organizations in class, you know that the Anti-Defamation League still exists today. It fights anti-Semitism, but it also fights all forms of hatred and bigotry. Um, but another response was that scholars estimate half of the 10,000 Jews living in Georgia fled the state 
after Frank's trial and lynching. And I think you can understand why that it, it, it had become dangerous to be able to, to be identified as a Jew in Georgia. By the way, as for the men who had lynched Frank, they were called the Knights of Mary Fagan, the Knights of the name of the little girl who was murdered. Um, they would evolve into the second Ku Klux Klan. And in the 1920s, they would target not only African Americans, but also Catholics and Jews. So there's some important underlying issues. I, I intimated a few minutes ago, Frank was a northerner. He was seen as an outsider. And the re public response to the trial really shows this tension between changes go underway in the South that, that Southerners thought the Northerners had brought, um, especially the evils associated with industrialization and urbanization, which were luring poor Southerners to the cities where there were harsh conditions in the factories, where children like Mary Fagan worked for 10 cents an hour, 10 hours a day, and they were breeding the urban evils of slums and crime. And certainly these conditions also influenced the verdict in the case. But I want to bring it up a little bit closer to our own day because calls for justice to Frank would continue to ring out over the years. In 1982, 82-year-old Alonzo Mom who had been an office boy at the pencil factory, came forward with an affidavit attesting to new evidence in the case that would exonerate Frank. Now he said that he had seen Jim Conley carrying the body of a girl at about the time that Mary Fagan was murdered. And Conley threatened him, saying, if you ever mention this, I'll kill you. So Mann was just a, a, a teenager. He was about 13 years old. He went and told his mother, and she told him not to tell anyone. So although some have questioned the truth of Mann's very belated affidavit, the Georgia Board of Pardons issued a pardon for Leo Frank, based not on this new evidence, but on the fact that the state of Georgia had failed to guarantee Frank's constitutional rights and ensure his safety in prison. So to this day, people still debate whether Frank was innocent or guilty. Um, and on the 100th anniversary of, of the case, so back in um, uh, 2013, um, media was all over the story once again. In Atlanta, a rabbi held a service marking the event and not only did Atlanta Jews come, but the, ch the grandchildren and the great-grandchildren of those who had lynched Frank came to the service. So questions about the Leo Frank affair, questions about the trial. Sophia. So you said, so you mentioned how no one else in the South would be able to be convicted based on the testimony of a African-American man. Does that make Jews above, equal to, or below African-Americans in the South in the social pyramid? So first, it's a great question 
because we haven't discussed this yet, but we need to talk about Jews and racial ideology. And Eric Goldstein's incredible book, The Price of Whiteness, shows how Jews um, in the South, but also Jews in general, in, in this particular time period, they're not seen as white, they're not seen as African American, so they're not black, but they are seen racially as others. And that's why I was making that point, because as you know, first of all, this is an era when African American men were lynched and would continue to be lynched well down into the 1960s. And, um, and the, 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 these men were lynched by the leading citizens of their, of their towns, and they got away with, these, the white men literally got away with murder. Um, and they could do that because, as whites, they were able to take advantage of, of, the, of the racial dis- difference and of the African Americans. And, of course, the case that, that blows that open was the murder of Emmett Till um, and, and how his mother so brilliantly, by keeping that coffin open and showing what those two men had done, um, that she blew, you know, blew open the, the civil rights movement. And of course, what's amazing about the Emmett Till case is another case where the two, the two men who murdered him, they, they, were, they were found innocent by a jury of their peers. But then a few months later, they sold their story to Look Magazine, and they confessed that they had actually done it, but they couldn't be tried for the crime a second time. But Jews have this in-between state in the South. Nice, really nice. Frank was from Texas and then went to New York and then went to Georgia. Right. So would the situation have been different if he had never gone to New York? Like if he had just gone from Texas to Georgia, would he still have been seen as like a Southern Jew? Right. So would the would, would it have, would he have been seen as a Southern Jew and therefore not a Northern interloper, not an outsider, not really different because he went to college? Maybe. I mean, if he if he would have if he would have stayed in 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 the South, but he was really this was. This is also about the legacy of the tension between the North and the South after the Civil War. It is the same, it's part of the same, same process. So anti-Semitism is part of the story, but it's not the only part of the story. And, um, and xenophobia, and we're going to see this in a minute, xenophobia is really rising around America in these years. Okay, um, how about if I move on to the, to the next example? Um, as Frank's case was making, oh, and you know what, I didn't show you this. Um, It's an artist's interpretation of the confrontation between Alonzo Mann and Jim Conley. But as Frank's case was, and his appeals were making headlines around the world, two men, subsequently known for their anti-Semitism, called for a new trial for Frank. One was the inventor, Thomas Edison, and the other was Henry Ford. So Ford is responsible for publishing in the United States and then also around the world the most influential anti-Semitic tract in all of history, the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. How many of you have heard of the Protocols before? Yeah, okay. Not everyone. Okay, so we'll talk about them a little bit. Um, The Protocols first appeared in a Russian newspaper in 1903. And they are clearly a fabrication that's actually based 
on a novel that was written, a satirical novel, political satire, that was about Napoleon III from France. It's actually a translation of a French text. Um, but the message of the protocols is straightforward and absolutely terrifying. They charged that the rise of liberalism had provided the Jews with the tools to foment the revolutions destroying the world order and its historic bastions of power like the nobility and the church and that Jews were about to take control of the world. And here you can see a tiny, tiny quote from the protocol number one. In all parts of the world, the words liberty, equality, and fraternity, obviously referring to the French Revolution, have brought whole legions into our ranks because the, the protocols are being spoken by an elder of the Jewish community. And these words were worms which ruined the prosperity of the goys. That's a word for Gentiles. And ruined the prosperity of the goys everywhere, destroying peace, quiet, and solidarity, undermining all the foundations of their states. And if you would, if you would read in these more deeply, you would see that the protocols dredge up century-old anti-Jewish stereotypes, uh, charges about Jews controlling money, controlling, exercising power behind the scenes. They control the media. They control the governments around the world. And they announce that the Jews are succeeding in their aims. Soon, they're going to take over the world and control it for all time. Since our focus today is on the interwar period, I'm not going to talk about how the protocols circulate, circulate around the world today, but I'll just show you one example. Um, in March of this year, so, you know, like, like not even half a year ago or so, um, a U.S. Capitol Police officer was suspended after a copy of the protocols was found near his workstation. So the question is, why are they so popular? They're so popular because if you read them, you are not reading an, an account of a plot to destroy the world. You're hearing the first person testimony of the leaders of the plot. So you're, you're like dropping right in on the plot to, um, to control the world. So it's evidence of the plot. So our first question is how do they come to America and how do they get disseminated in America? White Russians fleeing the Bolshevik Revolution convinced that there was a Judeo-Bolshevik conspiracy to overthrow the Tsar, took the texts with them, and published them wherever they went. So they got published in, they were translated and reprinted in London, in Paris, in Warsaw, in, Tur in Tokyo. The German version, which I just showed you in the other slide, was reprinted 32 times before Hitler came to power. They were brought to the U.S. by Boris Brassel, a white Russian emigre. So the question is then, how does Ford get involved with this? In, in his book, Henry Ford and the Jews, Neil Baldwin thinks that Ford's anti-Semitism was influenced by the McGuffey readers. You may remember we talked about the McGuffey readers the other day. We talked about their Christian les lessons. And so he thinks that Ford's Ford's anti-Semitism was really, at, the, at first, was really traditional anti-Judaism coming out of Christianity. But during World War I, 
Ford's anti-Semitism became increasingly manifest. He blamed the Jews for causing what was then called the Great War. It wouldn't be called World War I until we have World War II. So Ford, who was, who actually at one point actually ran for president, was, you know, man of the year in Time magazine, was the most famous American of his, of his generation. Ford, in 1919, went and bought a newspaper, the Dearborn Independent. It was a weekly. And when he saw that it was hemorrhaging money, he told its editors, find an evil to attack, go after it, and stick with it. So the result was the series, The International Jew, The World's Problem, launched on May 22nd, 1920, that ran for the next 91 issues of the newspaper. You have to understand that Ford had enormous influence and reach. Um, first of all, there were Ford motor dealerships around the country, and they shipped stacks of newspapers to the dealerships. You went into a dealership, you bought a car, you drove out with the car, and you drove out with a copy of the Dearborn Independent with the series The International Jew. The circulation of the paper, which was only 72,000 in 1919 when he bought it, five years later was 700,000, one of the largest newspapers in the United States. But the editors wanted to make sure that their messages got to the nation's leaders. So they sent it to 1,900 bank presidents, 1,100 rotary club presidents, 4,200 women's clubs, 757 college presidents, and all the members of Congress. News of Ford's anti-Semitism also reached overseas. This is an amazing article. It comes from the Chicago Tribune, March 8th, 1923. In it, if you, if you can read it from, from afar, um, I can't actually highlight the part, but it's, it's at the very end. You can see that a, a Chicago journalist has interviewed Hitler, and this is early, this is 1923, so it's very early um, in the development of the Nazi party. He praises Heinrich Ford, and he explicitly admires his anti-Jewish policy, which is the Bavarian fascisti platform. That's a quote from, from that newspaper article. Um, by the way, Hitler also paid tribute to Ford in his manifesto, Mein Kampf. He called him a single great man who, to the Jews' fury, still maintains full independence from the controlling masters of the producers in a nation of 120 million people. So Ford subsequently published the articles from the newspaper and the protocols in four volumes that were translated into 16 different languages. And because they never copyrighted the volumes, they continued to circulate, and probably you can still buy copies of them even down till today. One historian, Norman Cohn, has said that those volumes probably did more than any other work to make the protocols famous. And I just want to give you one more example of how the protocols circulated in the U.S. In the 1930s, they were disseminated by the enormously popular radio preacher, Father Charles Coughlin. 
he published excerpts from them. And in his radio addresses, he lambasted Jewish financiers. He derided Jews as international bankers. He, and he said that the infamous um, Nazi pogrom of Kristallnacht, the night of broken glass, when in November of 1938, the Germans staged a nationwide pogrom attack upon Jews in their homes and torched their synagogues. He said that that pogrom was justified retaliation for Jewish persecution of Christians. What was the Jewish reaction? And then I'll take your question. In these years, Jews virtually stopped buying Ford cars. Um, wasn't like uh, Coughlin's anti-Semitism also kind of rooted in like his anti-communism? Yeah, so, and, and that's actually such an important question, Zev, because these attacks, and I, I alluded to this when I talked about the Ku Klux Klan of the 20s as well, that these groups were not only attacking Jews, they also attacked Catholics, they also attacked communists, they also attacked African Americans. So it is, it, it, Coughlin's, um, like the white Russians essentially, saw that for, saw that the Jews were, um, were you know, Judeo-Bolsheviks. You get that, that hybrid Judeo-Bolsheviks. Good question. Other questions or comments? Sophia. What was in the International Jew, The World's Problems? Was it an article, short story? What, what was it actually saying? So they were, was it, it was a series of articles. Um, and actually, when the four volumes were published, they called it The International Jew, The World's Foremost Problem, in case it hadn't gotten the message across. And they, in it, for um, the, the writers, very much like the, the protocols saying, you know, the world has become corrupted by liberal values. So they attacked all sorts of things and blamed the Jews for them. So they said, for example, they attacked jazz. Jazz was corrupting proper music, and they blamed the Jews for jazz. So they, they, they echo the themes of Jew, Jewish world conspiracy, Jewish banking, Jewish financiers. They echo those traditional tropes. But anything that's modern, that's changing, also appears in those. And you can read them. I mean, they all, so they were, they were newspaper articles, essentially newspaper exposés. Grace. Um, um, my question is, um, so when you showed the newspaper article um, with the interview with Hitler, the title was Heinrich Ford. Was his name actually Heinrich because it kind of came in quotations, or was it a way to kind of relate him more to like a German audience and German anti-Semitism? So, my assumption, and I don't know for sure, my assumption is, is that the reporter, the way, this, the way that article reads, is the reporter um, has interviewed Adolf Hitler. And so my assumption is, is that he must have interviewed him in German or through an interpreter, and Hitler would have called Ford Heinrich, because Heinrich is Henry yeah. in, in German. By the way, um, j just to kind of give you the timeline of this, that was March of 1923. In November of 1923, Hitler staged the Beer Hall Putsch and tried to overthrow the German government and then went to jail, where he wrote Mein Kampf. So this is, this is like, he, he's, you know, he's not achieved the kind of level of attention that he will have achieved after the Beer Hall Putsch. Zoe. We know, I know that, um, you know, throughout his sort of reign, um, Hitler praised Henry Ford. Do we know any type of, like, response that Henry Ford had throughout mm. the years? Um, 
That's a really good question. Off the top of my head, I don't. Um, but I do know that before the war broke out, they began building Ford cars and motor trucks in Germany. And so clearly Ford had, if not directly with Hitler, he had um, a, a business relationship with Germans who would have had to have been approved by the Nazis in order to establish those plants. And so when American soldiers hit Germany, you know, or hit Europe during the war, they're like stunned that some of the, their, their German enemies are driving Ford cars and trucks. Yeah, good question. Really good. Others? All right, so let me go forward. Even as Ford was publishing the International Jew and the Protocols, the federal government was also enacting legislation that reflected anti-Semitic tendencies. And we talked about this last class, but I want to insert it here because it is part of this discussion. So you remember, we talked last class about the Emergency Quota Act of 1921 and the National Origins Act of 1924, how they capped a long process dating back to the 1890s, seeking to restrict the immigration of peoples that eugenicists were deeming the lowest races, who purportedly posed a great danger to the Nordics uh, uh, in America, who were descended from people who came from the British Isles, from Northern and Western Europe. According to Madison Grant, whose 1916 book, The Passing of the Great Race, was one of the most influential exponents of this view, Nordics, i.e. people of Northern Europe, were purportedly biologically superior to people who came from Southern and Eastern Europe. So this immigration legislation that we talked about last class, which was not, by the way, abolished until 1965, gave preference to immigrants coming from Northern Europe um, over those coming from Southern Europe, like Italians, and from Eastern Europe, like many Jews. So the re establishing quotas um, for the number of people who could come into America from these different places ensconced into American federal law the notion of the hierarchy of the races that had been advanced since the middle of the 19th century. So let me be clear. There was never a quota on the number of Jews admitted. The reduction was uh, on the countries in Eastern Europe. The reduction in the number of, of um, uh, the low quotas were from places like Poland and Russia, which is where a lot of Jews lived. And the result, and you can see it in these figures, you can see that when Jews start coming in in significant numbers in 1881 after the first wave of the Russian pogroms, you can see their numbers swelled. Look at the numbers for 1906, 1914. They declined during the war, and then they head right back up after, after the war and after a bit of the Reconstruction in 1921. And then they're cut in 1920, in 1920. They're cut in 21, which impacts 22. And then the quota of the low quota of just 10,000 coming in 1924. But it's important to understand that this quota system would in the 1930s adversely impact German Jews because the State Department um, would, 
instructed its consuls in Germany, the people who would have to issue a visa to come to the United States, it instructed them to put as many obstacles as they could in the way of Jews who were applying for visas. And you see here that as the Nazis were increasingly persecuting German Jews between 1934 and 1937, an average of 18,000 visas a year to America that were allocated for Germans because they had a higher quota, they were not being fulfilled because the people applying were Jews. So quotas were not only happening in federal legislation, quotas against Jews also in these years were established in colleges and universities. Um, the problem arose in the 19-teens at Columbia, where they were singing, where the students were singing this song, oh, Harvard's run by millionaires and Yale is run by booze. Cornell is run by farmers' sons. Columbia's run by Jews. So give a cheer for Baxter Street, another one for Pell. And when the little sheenies die, sheenies is a negative word for Jews, their souls will go to hell. So Columbia's dean acknowledged what had become a serious problem. Baxter Street was a street in the Lower East Side. That's where Jews were, where they were coming from there to study at Columbia. And he said that the school had become, and I quote, socially uninviting to students from homes of refinement. So the school, over the next five, six years, cut the percentage of Jewish students admitted in half. But the sons of the Protestant elites did not return to Columbia. And so it was a lesson for the president of Harvard, A. Lawrence Lowell, who you could see this headline on the front page of the New York Times. You see it says, Lowell tells Jews limited colleges might help them. So Lowell decided that they should institute a quota on the number of Jews as a way to mitigate anti-Semitism. So limiting the number of Jews is going to make it easier to um, alleviate anti-Semitism. And again, the way I did the international comparison before, quotas on Jewish educational opportunities existed in Russia. They were established in 1882 limiting um, Jews, depending on the level of schools, to somewhere no more than 5 to 10% of the students. They existed in Poland. They existed in Hungary. They had just not existed before in the United States. So the idea of quotas on the number of Jews admitted um, spread to most of the other Ivy League schools and also to the group of women's colleges called the Seven Sisters, and they set the pattern for admissions at another 700 private liberal arts colleges. Um, I have always been told that American University was not one of the schools that adopted the quotas. Um, but this discrimination was not only about undergraduate education, it was also about professional education. So look at th this quote because it's so powerful that, that you know, the dean of Yale Medical School could say Never admit more than five Jews, take only two Italian Catholics, and take no blacks at all. Um, in the days when signs like these dotted the American landscape, it wasn't only about quotas in education, but Jews couldn't get hired 
They couldn't get hired in manufacturing. They couldn't get hired in many corporate law firms. They couldn't get hired in many private hospitals. And in some areas of the government, like the State Department, you would not have found any Jews working. Help wanted ads. I don't know if you remember what those were, but they, they were, they ran in the newspaper. They actually used to say help wanted female, help wanted male. You actually were allowed to do that till the 1970s. And they could also advertise Christians only. They could say, you know, in other words, no Jews need apply. So how do Jews respond? We've, that's been one of my questions each time. How do Jews respond? The historian Kirsten Fermoglick found this list of distinctive Jewish names in the archives, and she began researching petitions to the courts of New York to change people's names. In other words, to make a legal change to one's name. And she discovered that they disproportionately came from Jews. There's a myth that people's names were changed at Ellis Island, but it's not true because they had ships manifest in front of them. They knew what people's names were when they landed at Ellis Island. Names were changed in the 20s and 30s and all the way down into the 60s and beyond. Jews changed their names as part of a family strategy because either the kids couldn't get into college or they wouldn't get jobs with Jewish names. Questions? Grace? Universities assuming that students were Jewish simply based off of their name and they didn't have them report their religious affiliation? So they, what happened is they started to change the admissions form. So around 1900 or so, how, how did you get into college? You took an exam. If you did well enough on the exam, you got admitted to college. And then they started to use the kinds of psychological tests and personality tests and personal interviews that are much more characteristic of, of subsequently of college admissions. And so, you know, it's not just the essays that you guys had to write to get in, into here, but they, they began to ask questions. What was your father's name? What was your mother's maiden name? Were their names ever changed? What is your religion? And so it would become pretty quickly clear who, who was Jewish or who, who might have had Jewish an ancestry in their background. And then they would also do things like personal interview. Remember reading, it's not in our time period, but I remember reading uh, um, an article that somebody wrote 50 years after she graduated from her Seven Sisters school. And she, um, and she says that um, she never faced anti-Semitism until she got to college. But then she remembered that on her interview at one of the women's colleges, the, the interviewer turned to her, and her first question was, where do you go to church, dear? So, you know, sussing, I mean, already knew that they were not going to admit her, and she didn't get into that school. Good question. Others about the quotas? No? Sophia? So as you've said, you keep saying this is the Jewish response. Was there a group who planned these responses, or were these individuals that happened to do the same thing? So it, it's a great question because we talked about the legacy organizations and there's no organization that calls for a boycott of Ford cars. And after World War II, by the way, there was an unofficial boycott by Jews of German cars. Like people who were Jewish would not buy Mercedes and Volkswagens. It was never officially launched, 
but it was something that kind of welled up from the ground. And you have the same thing in the name changing. I mean, obviously people knew people who were changing their names. And, and they saw that, you know, I mean, sometimes it, it could be split within a family, but so often it was actually everyone in the family, the parents would apply and they would change the children's names. Um, so it becomes like a personal strategy. But there are also in this period organizational strategies. One of the important organizations we talked about, the American Jewish Committee, I've actually researched their file on anti-Semitism in education in the 20s and 30s. I've, I, so they were, they were collecting, they were getting letters from people who were saying, um, you know, my, my daughter got rejected or my daughter got a letter. She applied to this very famous secretarial school, the Catherine Gibbs School. Um, young women who went to college in the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s, if you wanted to get a job, you needed to know how to do shorthand and typing, okay? There's a reason I learned how to type when I was in the eighth grade. And so, and so you would go, you'd go to college, and then you'd go to this kind of finishing secretarial school that would teach you the skills that you needed. And they said, we don't take Jews. And they, they would write to the Jewish organization, and the Jewish organization writes back and says, they're a private school. There's nothing we can do about it. But we know how many Jewish young men and women have been harmed by this. Good question. Others? Grace. It's a follow-up question just from earlier. You were talking a little bit about how within missions they would ask you um, your mother's maiden name, your dad's name, even if they had changed it. If it, you were practicing, say, Christian or you were atheist, but you had some half or quarter Jewish heritage, how would that impact college admission. Right. So that would have been more the situation in Nazi Germany where, where they measure grandparents. But if you're, you know, if neither of your parents are identified as Jews, then it probably would not have impacted it in the same way. Good question. All right. So I'm going to turn to the last big topic for today. Um, it is significant that this lecture coincides with the opening of the trial in Charlottesville, Virginia. Did you guys see the front page of the Post today? You see it in the news. Um, so it, there's, a, there's a civil trial that, that is beginning today that will probably go on for about a month. Um, in Charlottesville, the plaintiffs in the trial, it's the Sines v. Kessler trial, contend that the events of August 17th, 18th, 2017, wait, I'm sorry, it's, it's August 11th and 12th. I think those dates are wrong. Um, where white nationalists and neo-Nazi groups held tiki torch marches chanting Jews will not replace us were meant to ignite the violence that culminated in the death of one woman and the injuries sustained by the plaintiffs in this trial. And so there, there's a law from 1871. It's called the Ku Klux Klan Act, and it makes it illegal to... to um, promote violence, and so that and the the defendants in the trial, who are the heads of all the white nationalist groups um, that were marching there, the defendants in the trial say that what they were doing was protected speech, um, because we have um, the First Amendment. But the First Amendment does not protect speech that's meant to incite violence. So we'll see what happens over the course of the next month in the trial. But I bring this up because. The violence that we saw in Charlottesville on the University of Virginia campus in August of 2017 has antecedents in our time period for today. So the first thing that I want to say 
is that in September 1928, the blood libel that Mendel Bayliss had faced in Russia made its way to the United States. It came to Messina, New York, in a town where, by the way, the Ku Klux Klan burned crosses on lawns and where a sneaky kind of anti-Semitism, not the open kind, was seen as much more common. And a little girl had been sent by her, her parents, it was late Saturday afternoon, and they sent her into the woods to find her brother who had been playing with his friends. So not long after, her brother comes loping out, but the little girl never returns. So through the night, the townsmen comb the woods looking for the little girl. And then when they haven't found her, someone, and we don't know who, but someone says, you know, the Jews are having a holiday. Maybe they need blood. Sundown, Sunday evening, the next day, would begin the holiest day of the Jewish calendar, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Sometime Sunday afternoon, the little girl was actually spotted on a roadway um, far from her house. She had looked for her brother, fallen asleep, slept through the night, woke up, but she was so lost it took her a while to find her way out. So she was unharmed. But that Sunday evening, as the Jews of Messina made their way to synagogue, an angry mob was outside the synagogue. They were yelling the word kikes. Kike is an epithet, an anti-Jewish word. And they actually accused the Jews of having been scared into giving up the child. The Messina affair ended without violence, but the damage had been done. The blood libel had left its imprint on American soil. Then, in the 1930s, hateful rhetoric, threats of violence, and actual violence really burst forth. Remember what's going on in the 30s, the onset of the Great Depression, the rise of fascism, the rise of Nazism, the tensions in the United States. And so we see that in the U.S., right-wing and Nazi groups exploded, like the German-American Bund. They, they built camps like this all over the United States. Um, in, in one town in Connecticut, a minister actually led a charge. Not, uh, he was successful. They, they did not succeed in, in building this camp. But what were they attacking? They were attacking Roosevelt's New Deal. Um, they called it a Jew deal. They claimed that our country had become the United States. They spoke openly about how to permanently solve the Jewish problem in America. William Pelley, the leader of one of these groups, they were called the Silver Shirts, a Christian organization that hated Jews and communists. So, Zev, back to your point about you know, hatred for both groups. Um, Pelley said that the Jews were a race, so back to Sophia's point about that racial otherness, Jews were a race guided by the forces of darkness and evil. He called for confining the Jews to one city in every state in the Union, and if they dared to leave that city, they could be subjected to execution. Only in this way did he think 
that the Jewish threat, the threat of the protocols of the elders of Zion, could be averted. But such groups plan to do more than just vent their hatred or isolate the Jews. Father Coughlin's Christian Front, another one of these organizations, picketed Jewish-owned stores, vandalized synagogues, and attacked Jews on city streets in Boston and New York. By one estimate, in 1941, there were 48 anti-Semitic groups just in Los Angeles. Some of them were national, but just in Los Angeles, 48 different ones. In the book Nazis in Hollywood, Stephen Ross showed what these groups were plotting in the 1930s. They plotted to kidnap 25 prominent Hollywood Jews and hang them. And they hoped that it would spark a nationwide pogrom against the Jews. They planned to shoot poison gas into homes and synagogues in Jewish neighborhoods. The Jewish neighborhoods were quite well defined in Los Angeles. They planned to firebomb Jewish houses. The conspirators only got cold feet because, and here's a Jewish organizational response, the leaders of the Anti-Defamation League in Los Angeles had actually hired spies to infiltrate these networks. And when these um, conspirators realized that their networks had been infiltrated, they got cold feet and they never launched those plots. But those plots were thwarted in part because of what these brave men did. So let me conclude and then we'll take final questions. In 2020, the Pew Research Center reported the astonishing figure of 84% of American adults able to identify the Holocaust and knowing that it referred to the death and the persecution of Jews by the Nazis. But we're not focusing in this class on the Holocaust. Yet, when Americans talk about anti-Semitism, they talk about the anti-Semitism that led to the Holocaust and they talk about what they think was only an old world problem, not a new world problem. So this lecture about anti-Semitism in America between World War I and World War II has, I hope, proven that anti-Semitism is an American story, one that is all too rarely recognized and told. It's a story of our past, and as we know all too well today, like that trial, the very, very moment that we're talking, it is a story of our present. So questions, final questions, thoughts, or reflections, anything. Matt, and then Will. I was kind of curious, um, what is the legacy of the Portuguese Jews that we talked about or the Sephardic Jews, um, different kind of naming, so I don't know if the the name changes would have been similar. Are they all Mm. kind of lumped into the same category at this point? Right, so that's such a great question. So earlier in the semester, you remember, we had Professor Aviva Ben-Or talking about colonial Jews who were were Portuguese Jews. So their names certainly would have been quite different than that list of names, the identifiable Jewish names that that I showed you. But by this point, the Ashkenazic Jews who have come from, the, you know, the Jews who have come from Eastern Europe, from Germany, they, they've so overwhelmed the Portuguese Jews and then also the Jews, the numbers who would come in from Ottoman Europe, that um, we don't see them as 
major players, either in this issue or in the national Jewish organizations that are responding. I'm not saying that there weren't any, but they don't seem to figure in in the same way at this time period. And that's such an interesting, interesting question. Something actually I need to look more at. Good idea. Will. Hi. So um, I've heard about the Silver Legion of America and the German-American Bund, um, but my impression was always that they're sort of like small minority parties. How much of a reach did they have? Like, were they as influential as, say, like Coughlin or probably not, it was not just Ford, but like, were they, was like William Dudley Pelley as influential as, say, like Charles Coughlin? So Pelley actually runs to be president of the United States. And um, in terms of absolute reach, I don't know how many members of the Silver Shirts there were. But the German-American Bund was a significant organization. And it drew, it drew a lot of its members from, um, who may not have all necessarily been anti-Semitic, but it drew them from um, uh, people who had fought in World War I, people who were of German descent, and they drew them, you know, to the, they had like German, they had like Bund houses where you could go and they functioned like as, you know, a beer hall and you could hear different speeches. And the other thing is, which, which Ross shows in his book, Nazis in Hollywood, is they're getting funds and material from Nazi Germany. It's com- the reason he focuses on L.A., there are a number of reasons, but one is it's coming into the port. It's coming into the harbor in L.A. And for sure, it was also coming into New York. It's just I haven't read a book about it yet. Yeah. Grace. Um, so kind of just at the end, you were talking about how often Americans, they see anti-Semitism as an isolated incident in Germany that caused the Holocaust. And I think that what I've learned throughout this course is that anti-Semitism existed around the world before. But my main question is, how do you see this kind of being embedded into public school education and American history? Is there a push for that? Because I think that it's really important we learn about um, everything that went on with Jim Crow um, and how kind of that's lasted into the, what, has, what is going on in the United States today. And I wonder if there's an organization that's pushing for that. As far as I know, no one is pushing to expand education about anti-Semitism in the American public school system. So as you know, and because I, I, I'm, I'm sure many, this happened to many of you when you were in school, 19, I think that's the current figure, 19 states in the United States mandate Holocaust education today. Now, what that means is everything from reading the diary of Anne Frank to, you know, whatever the individual teacher's lesson plan is. But no one that I know of is talking about expanding education around the question of anti-Semitism. But I do think it is, I I liked your comment about Jim Crow because it is something that I think should be taught alongside of the racism that we see in Jim Crow and that it's it's part of the same ideology. They're, they're They're so deeply enmeshed and intertwined. Good question. Any others? No? Okay, I'll see you on Thursday. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Lectures and History Podcast. C-SPAN has a new podcast about books. Each episode delves into news about the nonfiction book publishing industry with publishing experts and insiders. You'll also hear reports on the latest nonfiction bestsellers, trends, and book reviews about books. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.